Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our reading today is from Mark 10, 32 through 52. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And followed him on the way. The word of the Lord. Thank you. All right. Let's pray real quickly. Dear Heavenly Father, what a beautiful, monumental text. I pray that you would make us ready to receive it. Give us minds that are engaged, 
hearts that are ready. Take our to-do lists. Take our what are we going to do after church out of our mind. And let us hear your word. Let us know what you want us to hear. Let us be free of all our earthly considerations to receive it. And Father, I pray, make me a vessel that is pure and clear, that communicates your word, not my own, that this most essential truth today may not be lost in the muddle of human speech. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. I pray this by your Holy Spirit. Amen. What is the truest thing about you? What is the truest thing about you? There is something that you have in your life that is most true, that you call most true. It is that thing that orients you and grounds you. For some of us, the most truest thing about you is what you do. Somebody comes to you and they say, who are you? Well, I'm an engineer. That's the, the way you understand yourself. That's the way you think of yourself. Or I'm, I'm a mom. I'm a homemaker. Whatever. Some of us, it's about what we've done, good or bad. When we think about what is the truest thing about us, we either think of our accomplishments or we think of our failures. Maybe the truest thing about you is that you have lost your job. Maybe the truest thing about you is that you were molested as a child. That's the understanding of yourself. That's how you see the world. Maybe it's what you have. What is the truest thing about you? Well, I have nice things. I have the best. That's how I know that I am one of the best. Perhaps the truest thing about you is, is what you desire, what you want, what you pursue to satisfy your inner cravings. This is important to recognize. All of us have something that is in our minds is the truest thing about us. And that truest thing about us that is in our mind determines everything about us. It determines our focus. It determines our understanding. It determines our value. It determines our identity. We do based on what we think we are. There's an example of if you are just an average pedestrian in your car, I guess it doesn't make you a pedestrian, but if you're just an average citizen in your car driving down the highway and somebody speeds past you 20 miles an hour above the speed limit, you don't do anything, do you? But if you're a police officer and that person speeds past you 20 miles above the speed limit, you respond to that. You go after that person, you, you cite them, you give them a ticket. Why? Because the identity of the police officer is, I'm a police officer, I therefore protect the law. The average citizen's identity is not a police officer and therefore doesn't respond to that. You see, what is the truest thing about us is our identity. What we think we are based on what we do or have done or have or desire, that forms our identity, that informs how we think of ourselves how we value, how we value ourselves and what we do, our understanding of who we are, what is the truest thing about us, is an urgent truth. I believe that that is what is going on in this text today. The text 
is going to ask us, what is the truest thing about you? What are you building your life upon as the truest thing about you? Our text is at a very key transition in the book of Mark. They are on the way. On the way to where? They're on the way to Jerusalem. We have been told two times before this that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he is going to be arrested, he is going to be tortured, he is going to be killed, and on the third day rise again. Our text represents the third time he tells his disciples this key truth. It is at the very end of this journey from Caesarea Philippi, where he was confessed as the Christ, to the doorstep of Jerusalem, where the Passion Week, the last week of Christ, begins. And so, as he has been on this walk, he has been giving these disciples an intensive clinic on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That comes to end today with the truth of this text. What is the disciples' identity? What is the truest thing about these disciples? We see in James and John that they are still caught up in the pursuit of stature and honor and position. Let us sit at your right and your left in your glory. They have an identity. The truest thing about them is what they are or what they might become. But Jesus is going to turn all of that upside down with these words in verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This statement is monumental. This statement clearly opens up for us what is the gospel. It clearly shows us the depths of God's grace. In these words are the truest thing about every disciple of Christ. In these words is the identity that Christ wants us to have. Our purpose statement at River Community Church is that we help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. It is understanding these words, a ransom for many, that unlocks the core of what it is to live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. So what is this ransom given for many? What is the ransom given for many? Because this must be grasped for us to fulfill what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. There are four truths in this text about what it means that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Each of these truths we must press into our mind and our heart, and as we do, they will form who we understand ourselves to be. So if you have the handout in your bulletin, let's look at that very first truth, the ransom is our price. When Jesus said that he came to give himself as a ransom for many, the ransom is our price. The ransom is our price. Now this may already raise an objection in your mind. A a payment for me? A price for me? Why, Why is there a price on my head? Why is there a payment at the core of the Bible for me? That's what the word ransom means. Ransom is something that we pay to set someone free. It is something that we give to pay off a debt. It is the redemption price. It is recognizing that 
There are debtors before God. There are sinners. We recognize this, this idea of, of debt even in our own justice system. When somebody commits a crime, it is frequent for us to say that they have to pay their debt to society. And so when we see this word ransom, we're seeing a payment for debt. The Bible uses debt to represent sin. We've already seen this. We see this every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's a very good definition of what sin is from the biblical perspective. Sin is failure to render to God what we owe him. Sin is failure to render to God what we owe him. That can be transgressions, doing things that are clearly against his will. He says, do not do this. But that can also be omissions, things that we should do that we don't do, leave us in debt to God. What is the the first great commandment? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's an all-the-time commandment. Any moment that we cease to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we have incurred a debt. We have come short of what God expects of us. And has any one of us fulfilled, love the Lord God with all your mind, soul, heart, and strength all the time? And so we recognize that when Jesus is talking about a ransom, he is talking about our debt of sin. Now, what is the cost? This is, this is a humbling truth. What, what is the cost for our debt? What must be paid? The cost is this. In the Old Testament justice system, and we still have it today, the penalty is sized to fit the crime. There is a proportionality between punishment and crime. And so when we see that there is a ransom that is paid, we must understand the cost. The penalty must fit the crime. Now we have looked in the, in the Gospel of Mark in the, in, in previously, and we have seen that those who allow their eye to look upon sin and to let sin into their bodies are in danger of going to hell, are in danger of an eternal punishment. And we may look at that and we may say, what? eternal punishment for just letting your eyes fall upon something that tempts you to just allow your imagination to be taken away, isn't that exceedingly out of proportion to the sin? It is important for us to recognize what sets the cost, what sets the price of our crime. I shared this a couple many, many months ago, and I'm going to share it a little differently. I'm going to add a little bit more to it, but a... uh, About this time last year, uh, the most expensive piece of art was sold at auction for $450 million. It was a da Vinci. Somebody bought this piece of art made by the master artist, Leonardo da Vinci, for $450 million. So, is the price of that piece of art the cost of the paint? Is it the cost of the canvas? None of that has to do with what has made that piece of art so valuable. The piece of art is made valuable by the artist, by the genius that created it. 
Now, suppose that you just accidentally walk across this $450 million piece of art and you sling Kool-Aid on it. How big is your debt to repair what you have just damaged? You have just taken on a $450 million debt. But even worse, let's say you didn't just accidentally sling some Kool-Aid on it. Let's say you had a box knife in your pocket. And because you were so angry at the, at the person who paid $450 million for this piece of art, you went to that piece of art and willfully slashed it to shreds. Now it's not just an accident. It's a willful act of destruction. It's not just $450 million. Now the price is the offense, the criminality that you have caused. Now, destroying a $450 million piece of art, we understand the cost of that. We understand the the penalty of that, and we recognize that there would have to be restitution. Well, now think about it. There is a greater artist. There is a greater craftsman. And he created and put his image upon human beings so that they would reflect his glory, his masterwork. They would display the splendor of the creator. And by giving them the image of God, he put upon them something of infinite worth, something that could never be paid back, something so precious that makes us priceless. And then we take that image of God and we take it into sin. We slash it with Uh, a heart built on rebellion, on throwing down the image of God, on making ourselves instead about our own pursuits, our own desires, not submitting ourselves to God, not owing to God what we owe him, but instead making ourselves the center. Well, what is the debt of destroying, of marring the precious image of God by sin, by willful sin? It is incalculable. It is infinite. We have defaced the image of God, which is priceless. And we have offended God's infinite honor in doing so. So when the Bible tells us that there is an eternal punishment for our sin, it is because we have committed an infinitely grievous offense in throwing off the Creator and marring His precious image by our sin. Anything less than an eternal punishment for sin would be to deny the eternal majesty and infinite worth of God, which is what is being defaced in sin. But more, how do we know what is the cost of our sin? The cost of our sin is seen in the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. First Peter chapter 2 verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Before we go around saying, my sins are small little mistakes, my sins are are not that big of a deal, my sins are victimless. Who did I really hurt in what I looked at on my computer last night? 
What we have to recognize is that every single sin that has been committed, every single sin that brings us short of the glory of God, cost the cross. The cross is what we must look at to evaluate the cost of our sin. The cross had to be put on the ground and our Savior had to be put upon it for our sins to be canceled. Do you see your sin through the cross? Don't compare your sins to your neighbor. You'll make yourself feel okay. Do you recognize that if you had committed one sin, marred the image of God with one sin, you have incurred the cross? We must recognize the ransom is our price. You have a debt as a sinner that is unpayable by any man. In the book of Psalms, chapter 49, verse 7, we read this. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. We are priceless. And when we sin, we destroy the image of the priceless, infinitely worthy God imprinted upon us. So where does our ransom come? That is the second truth we must see. The ransom is God's son. The ransom is God's son. Look up at verse 33. It says, the Son of Man will be delivered over. The last time we saw that word delivered, we recognized when it's in the passive tense, it is referring to an act that God is doing. And I believe it is the case here. The Son of Man will be delivered. Who's doing the delivering? It's not an agent that is on the plane of the text. It is an agent that is above the text. It is God himself. When we recognize that the ransom is God's son, we've come to that by realizing a couple things. The payment must be one, in kind. It must be in kind. And second, it must be sufficient. When we say that the payment for uh, sins must be in kind, we are saying it must be a substitute. It must be life for life. In the book of Leviticus, the the, the book of Moses that gives us the, the explanation of the sacrificial system, we are given this key understanding of why animals were sacrificed for sin. Leviticus 17.11 tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You see, sin, the payment for sin cannot be paid with money. It has to be paid with life. Life has to be lost on the altar for the sacrificer to live another day. And so the Old Testament was training the, the Hebrews that life has to be given for your life to be saved. Now it was in a sense a, an object lesson because there is no way that a goat or a bull could could equal the dignity of a human being. So we are told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system was simply 
a placeholder that was pointing us forward to the day that a sacrifice would be made that was truly sufficient. A life that would be provided that was truly equivalent to the task of paying the ransom of our sins. There's only one sacrifice that is sufficient. There's only one sacrifice that is in kind and that is sufficient, and that is Jesus. And why is that so? First, we see that Jesus is God's Son. We see in verse 33 again, the Son of Man will be delivered over. The the Son of Man has been given by God. The delivering is an act of God, as we see in the passive tense. And who is the Son of Man that is being delivered You go back to the transfiguration. You go back to chapter 9, verse 7, where we are told from the clouds that this one who calls himself the Son of Man is none other than my beloved Son. The ransom that is given is God's beloved Son. I remember as the most significant event of my life becoming a dad. I went into the delivery room with Becky. We go through this long process. For the most part, I'm distracted because it's going on forever. Hurry it up, Becky. Um, But then, that baby's born. And all of a sudden, out of this still clinical air is this cry. This, this screech, and it's my boy. I have a boy. And my whole heart just suddenly erupts with love and responsibility and cherishing. And I run, I almost knock the nurse over to get to that baby. And I caress his head, and I say, I'm your dad. Welcome to the world. I'm your dad. It is the most transforming moment of my heart, recognizing I have a child. There is no love that I could put next to that. And I'll tell you something, that love is a human love. It isn't really fair to make the analogy. But the love of God to the Son is the love of a father to a son perfected. It goes on for eternity. It goes on back and forth, sharing the glory. The Father looks into the Son's face from before the foundation of the world and finds perfect delight, perfect beauty, an occasion for his heart to erupt in praise. And he praises his Son, you are my beloved Son. And the Son says back to him, "Uh, you are my beloved Father, thank you. And it goes on and on in this eternal triune relationship of perfect love. God doesn't need anything else. He has the love of his perfect son, and the son doesn't need anything. He has the love of his perfect father. And it has gone on forever. And yet we read John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Do you recognize that the ransom of God's Son is to say this, that the infinitely loved and precious Son had to be given to pay the ransom, to pay the price of our sin. He had to be given to save us. Jesus is the only ransom. He alone is the God-man in the incarnation, in God becoming flesh. He is the only one who can be a perfect substitute, a blameless, sinless human being, and also be sufficient because he is divine to cover all of our sin and its penalty. There is no other sacrifice for sins. He is the ransom. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, where we are told this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let none of us say the blasphemy that there are many ways to heaven. There is only one way. If there was another way, God would not have put his son upon the cross. There is one way to heaven. It is in the ransom paid by God's son. Peter sums up this doctrine. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The ransom is God's son. The ransom is our price. And third, the ransom is God's grace. The ransom is God's grace. Look at verse 32 with me. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Where is Jesus on the way to Jerusalem? He's walking ahead of them. He's not being drugged to Jerusalem. He knows what happens in Jerusalem. He is ordained what is going to happen to Jerusalem. He knows his, his grisly death is in Jerusalem. He is not being pushed. He is leading. He is leading the way to Jerusalem. He is going to Jerusalem of his own will. Jesus is fulfilling the divine will as the suffering servant willingly. Look at verse 45 again. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. This is the reason Jesus came. If you have one verse in the Gospel of Mark underlined, it should be this one. This is why he came. He didn't come to give you interesting parables or great moral teaching. 
He didn't come to be known as a great teacher. He came to give his life a ransom for many. That is the only reason he came. He came to die for us. Now I want you to note well here, the Son and the Father are united. This is not the Son being forced to do what the Father wants. It's not the the Son trying to fix an angry father. The father and the son are united both in recognizing the judgment and just penalty of sin and also in recognizing the need of Christ paying the ransom for many. The father is the one in the, it, that, that stands behind the word delivered in the passive tense. He is giving. He is the one delivering. But also at the same time and equally willing is the son who says he came. So the Father is delivering and the Son is going or coming. This is an act that is done by the Trinity to accomplish our salvation. The Father and the Son are working together to save us. And so when we go into the Passion Week, which is going to start next week, When we go into Jerusalem, we need to recognize that every single thing that happens, Jesus is not the victim. Jesus is not the subject of an accident. He is not experiencing the tragedy of history. He is going willingly to be the sacrifice for sins, to be the ransom for many. And everything that is happening is happening under his sovereign It is God's initiative. It is God's giving. It's God's gift that is our ransom. What we could not do, we cannot repay the infinite debt of our sin. With a million lifetimes, we could not do that. And yet, what we could not do, God did freely for us at the greatest cost to himself. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 25. Paul tells us there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right before God by His grace as a gift through the redemption, i.e. the ransom that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, i.e. a sufficient, satisfying substitute to pay for our sins to be received by faith. To be received by faith. The pain of the ransom is God's gift given freely. Who does God's grace come to? Who receives God's grace? Look with me at verses 46 and 47. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. (laughs) 
Who does God's grace come to? He comes to Bartimaeus. A blind beggar is the person that Jesus comes to give his grace to. He comes to save the helpless. He comes to save the beggar. He saves the poor in spirit. He saves the childlike. He saves the sinner who cries out, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. To such who come to God, helpless beggars crying, Have mercy on me. Look at verse 49. To all who put themselves in that place, we read these words. He is calling you. He is calling you, the blind beggar. He is calling you, the sinner crying out for mercy. He is calling you. It is those who come to him by faith alone that receive his grace. It means you can receive it because it's a gift. You simply have to ask, have mercy on me, and mean that, recognizing the wretchedness of your sin debt, your lostness, your despair. If you are there, you are right where he saves. You are right where he redeems. Look at verse 52, the first part of verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. The only thing that Bartimaeus brought was faith. He had nothing to negotiate. He had nothing to bargain with. He had nothing to prove. He didn't come to him and say, if you'll give me my sight, I'll give you 10 years of working in the church. None of that was offered. He just simply begged. And his faith alone was the reason he received grace. The ransom is God's grace. Those who come, you are ransomed, redeemed, free in him. So let me say this. Come to him. Believe that the cross was necessary for your sins and come to him with nothing. Come to him and say, save me. I am a sinner. And if you come to him like that, number four, the fourth truth of the ransom for many becomes obvious. The ransom is our identity. We have seen that the ransom is our price. The ransom is God's son. The ransom is God's grace. But if you are here, have mercy on me, and you recognize the ransom, it becomes your identity. The ransom is our identity. We look at this passage, and again, we scratch our heads at these disciples. They've been with Jesus, and they, they, just, they appear so tone deaf. Just after Jesus says that he is going to Jerusalem where he is going to be uh, wickedly destroyed by wicked men. James and John says, hey, we, we have a favor to ask of you. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, 
in your glory. You see, the disciples are here not recognizing the ransom that Jesus is preparing to pay for them. They are not identifying themselves by that ransom. They are identifying themselves by their promotion. Haven't I been the best disciple? Haven't I done the most? Haven't I been there in all the right times? Promote me. Put me in your glory. Honor me because I was an early adopter. Their identity is who they are. Contrast that with Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, who has only these words, Son of David, have mercy on me. When he receives God's grace, he throws off his cloak. He is a beggar. He owns nothing but that cloak. That cloak keeps him warm at night. He throws off the cloak. Unlike the rich young ruler who could not afford to give up his wealth, The blind beggar gives up his only possession and chases after Jesus. And where does Bartimaeus go when he receives his sight? Verse 52b, we are told, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We're going straight into Jerusalem. We're going straight into the sawmill. We're going straight into the gauntlet. And Bartimaeus said, I'm going where you're going. I'm with you all the way. That's a disciple who knows he has been ransomed at a price. Now look again at that phrase. Jesus came to be a ransom for many You must recognize this about the ransom. Jesus' death was purposeful. He laid down his life for many. Jesus' death is not a stack of coupons given out generally for anybody who picks one up. Jesus laid his life down for a people. He laid his life down purposefully, definitely, intentionally. It was not just thrown out there and said, does anybody want this? It's not buffet food waiting to get cold if no one eats it. Jesus gave his life a ransom for many. Look at John chapter 10, verse 13. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. How does he know them? In what way does he know them? Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, i.e. perfectly, from before the foundation of the world, eternally, Jesus knows his own. He knows them personally. That's how Jesus knows his own. And who are his own as we finish the verse? I lay down my life for the sheep. Who does Jesus lay his life down for? He lays it down for people he knows. Before you know him, he knew you, and he laid his life down for you because you're his sheep. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The payment, the ransom, is not against abstract sin. It's against your sin. 
your personal transgressions. That's the hyssop that he purges with his blood. Galatians 2.20, Paul, in an autobiographical moment, says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The ransom was done for his people, for a people he has cherished and loved from before the foundation of the world. It is not an impersonal sacrifice. It is a personal sacrifice sacrifice done for you. If you are hearing these words and you are saying, I must give myself to him, I must respond to the call, it is because he has died for you. He has died for me. He's died for me. The ransom, part of why Jesus died was for me. How do I look at my life? How do I value things? I value them through this fact. He died for me. I have been purchased. It was his blood for your sins. It was his blood for your soul, for your life. It was his blood for your communion. It's his blood shed for you. That is your identity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, knowing that the ransom for many was for me, for you who have put your faith in Jesus means that your identity is not your job. It's not your stuff. It's not your history. It's not your sins. It's not what you're trying to do in the future. It's not your desires. It is that you have been bought at a price. You are owned. You are redeemed. You are Free in the grace of God. And what does that mean? It means that our life should be about God's glory. I mean, what else do we live for? Do we live for our own glory? No, we we live for God's glory. He purchased us by the blood of his own son. Does it mean that we're cavalier about sin? Do we say, you know what? I I know that Jesus died for me, but there's grace to cover this, so I'm just going to enjoy my Saturday night and go all out. You've been purchased. You should hate the sin that Jesus died for, that he gasped to pay for. You have been bought at a price. And do you walk around as more important than other people? Do you say, somebody else will do that job? No. You become a servant of all because your Lord laid himself down for you. Your identity is that you are ransomed for him. You are not your own. Beloved, you are redeemed. You are his. What is the ransom given for many? The ransom is our price. 
The ransom is God's son. The ransom is God's grace freely offered to you. And the ransom, when you cry out, have mercy on me, is your identity. What is the truest thing about you? Is your identity that you have been ransomed? In the gospel, you are made new. And you are made Christ's and no one else's. Have you responded to the call of the gospel? This word is for all who have ears to hear. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. He says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Have you said, have mercy on me. Save me by your gospel, Jesus. He has you here to hear these words, to make this your identity, to give this grace to you. Have you received it? Is it the firm foundation of your soul? I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know the ransom for many, that they would make it their own in faith today. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.